Hello, and welcome to the Longevity Now podcast, the place for all your news and views of life extension from around the world. In recent podcasts, I have reflected a little bit on the slow progress in rejuvenation science. Through the last 20 years of advocacy, I have talked with hundreds of researchers and other advocates who have been positive about the prospects of biological rejuvenation. There have been a lot of therapies and treatments under investigation that seem to have a lot of promise. This was the case in 2005, 2010, 2015, 2020, and now. Yet there isn't much that is proven or available for the average man on the street. Enter Aubrey de Grey once again. Despite the slow progress, he is quite optimistic about the near-term future. Listen in to find out why and to get the details of an ambitious research effort designed to finally determine the efficacy of some of the popular anti-aging and rejuvenation therapies under investigation right now. And now I would like to welcome to the Longevity Now podcast, the Chief Science Officer and President of the Longevity Escape Velocity Foundation, Aubrey de Grey. Well, thanks for having me back, Justin. It's great to be here again. Yeah, it's wonderful. You know, a lot of people that listen to our podcast are very familiar with you and your work over the past years, and they might have heard some inklings of the LEVF projects. Uh, you've done a few interviews on that already. Um, so if you could just start out with a little, a little bullet point review of the foundation and its first uh, robust mouse rejuvenation project. Yeah, sure. So, of course, the foundation is very new. I kind of did the soft launch of the foundation at the Longevity Summit Dublin in uh, September of last year, before we even had a name for the foundation, or at least one that we could publicize. And um, at this point, the projects that we are engaged in are basically the ones that I enumerated then. So let me go through them. First of all, on the advocacy side, advocacy is going to be a bigger part of our activities than that it has been in Seth's Research Foundation in the past. Probably 20% of our money is going to go on it. And that's because it's time. It's because we have, you now the conversation in the wider world has moved forward over the years to a point where momentum can actually be injected in the places that matter. So one group that we are helping to fund is the Alliance for Longevity Initiatives, A4LI, which is a lobbying group. It's a 501c4, which is what you have to be in the US to do lobbying. And they directly interface with Congress and with, you know, um, elected representatives and their staff and so on. Uh, because now, you know, we're at a point where you can have intelligent conversations and people don't just like say warm words and, uh, you know, basically just walk away because they know there are no votes in it. That's changing. And as regards votes, the other big advocacy initiative that we are funding is called the Healthspan Action Coalition, run by some extremely stellar people in the advocacy and networking and politics space. The most prominent people who are really running this are Bernie Siegel and Melissa King, who have been absolutely at the pinnacle of regenerative medicine advocacy and networking over the past 10 or 20 years. Well, 20 years. And their goal is really to be what I like to call the antidote to the AARP. In other words, to be advocates for the older generation, but to do so in a manner that, when it comes to medical intervention, uh, expresses positivity and hope and all that, rather than just, you know, fatalism. And uh, so, so, again, that's an initiative whose time has come, and we believe that it's very valuable to support it financially. 
But the rest of what we're doing is research. So the, the, there is some work going on in cryonics. In particular, we are supporting a company named Kynice, which is the kind of revival of a prior company that failed named Aragos, run by Tanya Jones, who was once the chief executive officer at Alcor, and before that the chief operating officer, and of course was also the chief operating officer at Sense Research Foundation for quite a few years. So she and I go way back, and I have enormous admiration for her resilience and also for the technology that she is pursuing within Kynice, which involves essentially vastly improving the quality of cryopreservation, in other words, vastly reducing the damage done to tissues by the cryopreservation process. But our flagship project is the Robust Mouth Rejuvenation Project. This is happening at the most successful of the spin-outs, the half-dozen spin-out companies that Sense Research Foundation created, namely ICOR Life Sciences in upstate New York. ICOR was originally started to pursue our macular degeneration work, and that's gone very well over the years. My understanding is that the technology is about to be sold to Big Pharma, so it's been moving very nicely. But in parallel with that, ICOR branched out and diversified and created a subsidiary that was working in senescent cells and such like. And what matters right now is that one big division of ICOR is a CRO a contract research organization, and they've done a whole bunch of work over the years in, ma- in mice, live mice. So they have a fantastically knowledgeable and expert vet who oversees all of that and who has terrific staff. And their lifespan projects in mice have been quite varied. They've all been relatively small so far, and we've decided to go with them to do a very big one. So back in December, I bought a 1,000 mice and they will be used to test the level of synergy between a variety of interventions. Now, the interventions we have chosen, four of them, are ones that have already been shown by other groups over the years, over recent years, to individually have significant benefits in terms of extending both average and maximum lifespan in mice, and specifically to have done so when the therapy, when the treatment has begun in middle age, so when the mice are already 18 months old or so. That's very important to us because we believe that that's what we need to be aiming for. If we're looking at rejuvenation, damage repair, we need to be looking at things that can be done to animals that are already in middle age. So we've got these four interventions. One of them is not exactly a damage repair intervention. You can think of it as a kind of non damage repair control, and that's rapamycin. It's a calorie restriction mimetic, as you probably know, and um, it's arguably, I would say, quite there's a good case that it's the most effective one as of now. But the other three things are very much damage repair. One of them is the replacement of some of the blood stem cells, hematopoietic stem cells of the older animal, with young ones. So this is a kind of variation on the parabiosis theme. Of course, for the past 15 years or so, it's been very high profile that if you give young blood to animals, to older animals, they like it. And more recently, work that started out being funded actually by Sense Research Foundation in the Convoy Lab was able to show that if you replace the plasma or some of the plasma of older animals, then similarly you get a big effect. This is a case here now where we are not replacing the plasma, we're replacing the cells, or at least some of them, by replacing some of the stem cells. 
And the reason we've chosen that particular approach is because there have been papers recently that showed very significant uh, increases in longevity when this was done in middle age, as I said. So that's two interventions. The third one is telomerase. This is a weird one because, of course, for the longest time, people have said, well, you know, mice express a lot of telomerase naturally, so obviously it's not going to be any use to them to give them more. But several years ago, Maria Blasco's group in Spain discovered that actually it was beneficial to do gene therapy on relatively middle-aged old mice with telomerase. And this has been repeated recently by the group of George Church and Liz Parrish in a different way. So it's solid now. It really is. We kind of, kind of understand what's going on. Essentially, yes, they express a bunch of telomerase naturally, but their telomeres are so fragile, so unstable, that they need a lot, and you can get benefits even so. And the fourth one is a synolytic. So synolytics, you know, there's, honestly, it's been a very patchy field over the past decade. There's a lot of limited reproducibility of work that's been published in this area. But we have gravitated, we, we feel that synolytics definitely have potential. We've got to get rid of senescent cells. And we have decided to use a synolytic that we have a lot of faith in. Essentially, it is a prodrug. And again, this was an idea that came out of Spain, in this case from Manuel Serrano. The idea is to exploit the fact that most senescent cells have very high levels of expression of an enzyme that breaks down galactose, a particular sugar molecule. And it turns out that if you encase a synolytic in galactose, then you basically improve the selectivity of that drug for senescent cells. Because the drug, when it goes into non-senescent cells, never gets out of the cage. So it doesn't really do any harm. Whereas in senescent cells, the cage gets broken down because it's made of galactose. Now, we're actually not doing that. We're doing a kind of second-generation version of that, which was also developed in Spain, and which involves actually making the synolytic, which is called noviticlax, into a prodrug by covalently attaching one copy of galactose, one molecule of galactose to it, in a particular place that inactivates it. And again, this galactose is cleaved off and broken down by cells that are expressing a lot of this enzyme beta-galactosidase, and therefore the drug gets activated and you're away. So again, this has been shown to work quite well in terms of extending lifespan. And so those are the four things we are combining. Good. We are, of course, doing controls with none of these things. We're doing baselines with each one of them individually, and we're doing all four. And also we're doing three out of the four in all four possible ways because we want to identify if there are any antagonistic interactions, which there could easily be, between the things. So that's, our, that's basically our program. And of course, we are not just measuring lifespan. We'll be measuring all the usual things that people measure in terms of health of animals at different ages, both visually and behaviorally and you know, taking blood draws and also actually killing some of the animals, only a few of them, of course, at various points in order to look at their tissues in more, in more thorough detail than one can if you don't kill the animals. It occurred to me when you were talking about these different therapies that many of them have been tested for many years now. And some might wonder, well, why are we still working in mice <laughs> if we've had so many positive results and even some human trials that have shown you know, decreased biomarkers of aging with certain senolytics and with telomerase uh, upregulation and things like that. So a lot of people might be thinking, isn't it time to, you know, that we should be doing human studies or is there just not enough data yet in mice to say conclusively? So... 
First of all, I think absolutely that the people who are doing clinical studies in humans, sometimes in themselves, of course, Liz Parrish is a famous example of that, are doing very valuable work. And this information, it is time for the people who want to get involved and be early adopters in these ways and to get involved in clinical trials to actually get going. However, what you said about mice is also correct. We do not have nearly as much data in mice as we need to have. First of all, very, very few, a very small minority of the lifespan experiments that have been done in mice over the years until very recently have been late onset ones where you're starting with mice that are already in middle age before you do anything. Very, very few. Secondly, almost no experiments have been done with combination therapies. And this kind of isn't surprising if you look at the incentive structure that exists in the community. On the one hand, if you're in academia, Taking a bunch of things that already somewhat work and putting them together and seeing that they still work, you know, that doesn't get you a high-profile paper in nature or cell or science. And the reason it doesn't is because it doesn't fit the academic philosophy of, you know, testing hypotheses and, you know, finding surprising results. So it's, it's like, you know, not favoured. And similarly in industry, in the private sector, you know, combining things that already work, either they just aren't, or they're off patent already or... If, if, there, if there is IP, then it's different bits of the IP are owned by different people and there's all manner of nasty cross-licensing to be done. So basically it's not happening. And so we, as an independent non-profit that is funded exclusively by philanthropy, you know, we are the people who can avoid that short-termism and those, those incentive problems and get the, right, the, the work done that really needs to be done. Now, if we talk about the other aspect of your question, the, 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 the human part, of course, there is the question of translatability. You know, we all know that drugs that work in mice mostly don't work in humans in the end. Uh, the only reason people do mice experiment, mouse experiments at all in, in medical research is because even if they don't work most of the time, at least they work more of the time than they do than, than drugs that don't work in mice, right? But still, it's not very good. Now, in damage repair, we may have less of a problem of that nature than we do with drugs that you know manipulate metabolism just because the damage is more similar you know than that than it is in mice but that's a bit speculative i'm not really sure whether that's going to be true or not so honestly the number one reason why we're doing this experiment or at least the equal number one along with the potential for translatability is the rhetorical reason in other words the fact that if we can really really push out the healthy and total lifespan both mean and maximum of mice that are in middle age when we start, then what we're doing is we're pushing out the healthy lifespan. We're keeping these mice, mice in a good state of health for maybe a year longer than they would normally be. People are simply not going to be able to continue being cynical about all this and saying, oh, you know, aging is not a disease. It's like gravity. It's woven into the fabric of the universe and medicine will never touch it. That's just not going to be possible anymore. So that's really why where I've been focused, I, I, that's why I coined the term robust mouse rejuvenation nearly 20 years ago, and why I've been focused on it for so long. Yeah, and uh, the incentive problem you mentioned there, you're funded by philanthropy, but yeah. we all know that human trials say you really were able to push out the uh, lifespan of these mice. And mm -hmm. everyone said, wow, this is amazing. But then you got to run a human trial typically speaking, I mean, biohackers are out there who would, you know, move things forward by themselves. But if you really want to do an official human trial, it doesn't seem there's enough philanthropy in the world to run a robust, large scale human trial. So how do you envision that it would become translated into a human, a product that's commercially available, a combination therapy? Yeah, that's always been kind of a barrier. 
Well, right, yeah. I mean, but it's a, it, it's a bullet that everyone in the field knows that we are eventually going to have to bite. So it's a question of, you know, biting, uh, biting it in small, in small bits, I guess, making these incremental advances. The advances like, for example, getting the FDA to be happy with the time trial. That was a huge advance in terms of the future regulatory hurdles. It changes the incentive structure within Big Pharma quite a lot. The, uh, the ICD codes, the, w the World Health Organization, you know, bringing in codes that, have, uh, that define aging, that include aging in a very sensible and clever way. Uh, you know, again, that will, in time, change the incentive structure quite a lot. And the more, the more of these little bricks in the wall that we actually put in place, the faster it is to put the next ones in. Okay, and then I just wanted to give you an opportunity here to uh, say anything that you I mentioned early in the podcast here that you had given a few other interviews about the LEV Foundation and the Robust Mouse Rejuvenation Project. Uh, were there a couple of things that maybe in the other interviews you thought, I wish I would have touched on this aspect of it that uh, you I give you opportunity here to mention? Yeah, well, actually, it's more than a few. I've literally been giving like two interviews a week for the past few months. <laughs> okay. so, so you um, have everything pretty much covered. Pretty much, yeah. I okay. mean, you know, of course, things have been developing over time. Like, for example, we only actually finalized our decision on what synolytic we were going to use about one month ago. As the experiment gets going, it's just kicking off really now. The, um, the, there will be news all the time. We will be, you know, putting out updates every couple of weeks because we can do this because we don't need to worry about, you know, confidentiality and, and right. credit and all that stuff. We can just, you know, do the right thing. Yeah. And you know what? I want to mention again, touch on this topic about you mentioned the resistance over the years for real rejuvenation interventions yep. that so much of the structure of the government and academia is so resistant to Reju the thought, even just the thought of rejuvenating uh, people, biological rejuvenation. And, and you've been involved in it for so many years. Why do you think it persists even to, I mean, today there's a lot more investment. Obviously, there are some new companies popping up, but boy, there's still a lot of institutional resistance. And I know you've talked about it before, but you know, expound upon that just a little bit again, why the resistance is out there. Yeah. Institutional is only part of it. Really, Huge amounts of it are based on the resistance of the general public. Because at the end of the day, you know, elected representatives will not make dramatic, courageous moves unless they think there are votes in it. You know, companies will not do so unless they think there are customers at the end of the line, things like that, right? So um, it's the public that really matter here. Why are the public this way? Well, essentially because it's been thousands of years that the public have been you know, having to live with the reality of this horrible thing that's going to happen to them if they live long enough without being eaten by a lion, right? And they've had to find ways to rationalize aging away and put it out of their minds and get on with their miserably short lives and make the best of it rather than being preoccupied by this terrible thing. So, you know, this is why I called this thing the pro-aging trance so many years ago, that people just have to find some way to do this and it doesn't matter how how irrational their rationalizations are as long as they work so you know people will people who are perfectly rational in absolutely every other topic in the world will say things that would embarrass a five-year-old when it comes to aging They'll i say found th that i found that a lot myself right. right and um you know the reason i came up with that name for the for the phenomenon 
was uh, because it reminded me of something that I had seen in a stage hypnotist show when I was an undergraduate back in the 80s, where someone was told something that wasn't true and then was forced to explore the logical consequences of what they had been made to believe by the hypnotist. And, you know, they made up the most completely crazy explanations, but they made them up without any hesitation or, you know, difficulty. And they just completely couldn't see that, the, that what they just said was completely crazy. You know, it, it was like that. Yeah, that's one aspect of the last, I would say, 20 years. I mean, you and I have been advocating for and raising money for rejuvenation research uh, for 20 years, at least now for myself, over 20 years. Right. And I kind of reflect back and I think, wow, that's a long time. And there's nothing commercially available yet that I can just go to the you know local pharmacy down the street and say, get a little cocktail that, that has some life extending benefits. And of course, I just, there are plenty of things commercially available that are claimed to have life extending Yes, benefits. there are many that claim that. And biohackers, but, uh, I give mm-hmm. them credit. I mean, some of them are testing they're taking different therapeutics and different, they're doing different treatments and biohacks and they, they seem to be getting some impressive results. Some of the biohackers out there. So that is good news, obviously, um, but it it's been a long time. And I was just wondering if for the audience, if you can reflect back just a little bit about the last 20 or so years yeah. and what has been uh, kept, has kept you going, what positive things have happened and, and what are, what is taking you by surprise that it's taken so long or that, yeah. It's hard to raise money. I don't know. Uh, what's what's your reflection so, back? So, so you know, temperamentally, I'm a you know I went to the same school as Churchill. It's, it takes a lot to slow me down. So um, I I don't really have I don't, I haven't really had too much difficulty. And most of the time when I look at this, it's more of a glass half full thing. You know, I see the progress that happens. I recognize how big the challenge was at the beginning. You know, this entrenched fatalism about aging and the way in which that had manifested itself as distortions of the reality on the part of various constituencies, including, I have to say, the academic gerontology community, who were kind of far too fond of pretending that there was some real meaningful distinction between the diseases of old age on the one hand and aging itself on the other hand. And they were only doing this because that was how they were getting their grant applications funded, but they knew perfectly well it wasn't true. So, um, uh, you know, that's now you know withering away and people are recognizing that that distinction is not just non-existent, but damaging. And, uh, and that helps, you know, uh, so many little details like this that have happened. And in general, when I talk to mainstream media, you know, it's much, much easier now. I, just this morning, I did an interview with The Economist. And, you know, The Economist is, is a you know, very well-respected entity. 20 years ago, they were writing complete gibberish about how aging is actually immutable and it's probably a good thing anyway and so on. Well, you know, you don't get that anymore. So, you know, progress is happening. And I kind of accept that it was always going to be a long haul. Well, Aubrey, thank you so much for joining us on the Longevity Now podcast. Best of luck with the uh, robust mouse rejuvenation uh, project. We'll be looking for updates, of course. And of course, what I need need to say before I go is we have our annual conference coming up in August. Yes. Uh, The website's likely to go live today, uh, longevitysummitdublin.org. It will be, uh, .com, I think, sorry. It's the same same city as last time, different hotel, well, different venue, but the same city, Dublin, which is a wonderful place to have my kind of conference where recreation matters. And um, the program is 
it's going to blow everything away. The, the, the quality, of the calibre of the speakers is far and away better than any other conference because, you know, it's my conference. And uh, so August the 17th through 20th, you know, be there or be square, as they say. The 17th through the 20th in Dublin, August. Yeah. All right. I'm actually writing that one down. <laughs> Thank you so much, Aubrey. Really? See you next time. Remember, one key thing that Aubrey mentioned is that his new effort is funded by philanthropy. Incentives for large businesses and academia are still not well aligned with the ambitious goals of life extension advocates. Moonshot initiatives are still funded by us. Please continue to donate your time and money if and when you can. Until next time, I'm Justin Lowe.